something working? Or coming through? Yes, the light's on. I think we're live. What's up, everybody? This is Ryan Heyman from Cane and Rinse. I know what you're thinking. There wasn't supposed to be a sound of play this week. Well, things are about to change around here. Everyone knows that in between recording sessions, Leon puts himself back into cryostasis, so I've broken into the Sound of Play studio and I brought my pirate radio antenna, and we're broadcasting on all frequencies. You know the old saying, when the boss is in cryostasis, there are no rules. That's right, from here on out, it's all licensed Tony Hawk music all the time, baby. You know, on second thought, that song's kind of crap anyways. I guess I'll just stick to the original game soundtracks and hand-picked requests from our forum, Facebook, and Twitter pages. Anyways, let's go ahead and kick this party off, huh?
Sound of Play, we bring you an eclectic, now weekly, compilation mix of some of our and your favorite pieces from the many video game soundtracks we've enjoyed over the years. Joining me, Ryan Heyman, this week in Sound of Play 41 is James Carter. Hello. And Carl Moon. Hey, guys. That first track that we heard is a swinging rendition of Like a Dream Come True. It is a piece from Persona 4 originally that was remixed for Persona 4 Dancing All Night, the PS Vita dancing game, um, which I haven't had the chance to play yet. But um, remind me, were you saying that you played it or you were going to play it in our green room discussion before the show? <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm going to play it. Uh, oh, okay. I've actually <laughs> borrowed it. I've borrowed it off a friend. So it's, oh, it's sitting there. It's actually in the Vita at the moment, which sort mm-hmm. of makes it all the worse that I haven't started it yet. But yeah, it's, uh, it's certainly on the to-do list. I might actually start it tonight. Okay, so we don't have any, uh, any formal expertise on the game just yet. But I can say that the... Uh, soundtrack is i mean a little hit and miss but overall i think it's a really nice uh just you know remixes of those original pieces and that one in particular is my favorite on the soundtrack i know that um, i described on the persona 3 show that a lot of the persona music i almost view as being kind of like stockholm syndrome ish my response to it like i can't (laughs) tell any longer whether i genuinely like the music or whether i've just become so accustomed to hearing it that it became like a part of my life and like a part of (laughs) my heart (laughs) but um you know i do have a thing for uh that kind of jazzy j-pop to hear this version which just went like full swing jazz is a uh, really lovely rendition (laughs) was this a particular favorite track of yours from persona 4 originally you know it's another one that i didn't really think much of while I was playing the game. But then mm. when I turned the game off and just went about my life, like I would find myself whistling the tune like incessantly. And so it obviously yeah. did get into my head. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and after, you know, after I finished the game, like that song just really stuck with me. And something about that song is like the one that I go back to, to make me think about my time with persona four. And so hearing mm. this mm. version of it, it's like, a. um, it's like going back to that uh, really kind of jazzed up version of the uh, Mario 64 song from Mario Galaxy 2. It's like it, it it's such an evocative and, and um, energetic take on a song that I'm already familiar yeah. with and have that kind of uh, attachment to. Carl, do you want to introduce your first track today? Yeah, uh, given my past appearances on this podcast, it would only be right if I went straight away with a retro game. And... This one seems strange now to call it a retro game for me, but given it's now 20 years old, I think it's only, uh, I think that's the correct label for it. <laughs> we talk about retro in a way like um, when people pitch a retro indie game or something that usually means kind of like the 8-bit style or the, the heavily pixelized, yeah. you know, this and that. But really like this has a not necessarily a retro aesthetic like it looks like an old game by modern standards but um, this type of game this type of um, arcade shooter is something that you don't really see anymore and so it kind of has the the spirit of a retro within it Uh, absolutely and and you sort of when you think back like that it it gives me an even stronger affinity with my time Mm, and you know anyone who uh, went to the arcade or was brought up around the arcades as I was this game was just everywhere it was huge and uh you you could not enter the arcades without hearing the screaming word action 
everywhere and the <laughs> you know the, the the sounds of people using the peripheral that came with it and i'm sure many people have already guessed at what it is it's time crisis and mm-hmm. it was such a sort of big deal when it came to the arcades around here and and you know we'd, we'd all go bowling but bowling at the time was just you know sort of code for well we'll do one game of bowling but we'll spend most of our time in the arcade because that's where you know that, that it was at that place that, that got most of these arcade machines early and that there was just a whole fleet of these time crisis mm. units um that would constantly play the attract screen on loop uh, and it always had that sort of the exact same rollover story, super loud music, and you'd hear, you know, it's time for the one-man army, Richard Miller. <laughs> and and then you had the, the screaming enemy of, she must be dead by now. And it's just, it's one of those things that's burned into my mind from so much time in the arcade. Um, and the second that I hear the music kick up, which was behind the entire track screen, uh, just the memories come flooding back and then of course we got the you know the, the quote unquote arcade perfect release uh, on the PlayStation which was never arcade perfect and of course that's a term mm-hmm. you don't even hear now which is kind of strange um, given that all the way through the late 90s that, that was sort of the goal uh, and you could re- import any number of these uh, gun con sort of style guns uh, to, to use with them but nothing ever matched the arcade and, and the quality of that feedback and Part of this is just, you know, my love of playing this game more than necessarily the soundtrack and how the how when I hear this, um, back as a sort of a, a young teenager <laughs> around in the arcades and playing this with my friends and, and seeing how far we could get off a one pound coin. So, yeah, this is the main theme uh, from Time Crisis by Hige Nakamura. crisis that is a like a real arcade staple and um you know back in the old days you'd get the kind of standard arcade games the the games that you would have nice analogs for on the home consoles the the final fights and the turtles in time and stuff like that but um arcades were the the one place where you can have these real kind of peripheral heavy experiences you'd have the House of the Dead shotguns that you could actually cock like a real shotgun mm. and you'd have the the guns with the uh, like the sniper scopes that you can look into to get a second screen and all of those experiences that other than, um, you know, the, the light gun and the super scope and the occasional, you know, Sega bass fishing rod um, were a little bit uh, not the not the standard for the home console experience. And, uh, yeah. you know, for a hot minute there with the Wiimote and the, you know, PlayStation Move, Connect, whatever, it looked like we were kind of transitioning in that direction. But, um, 
you know, other than the maybe rock band and guitar hero movement that hasn't really taken off to the same extent that it was a staple in the arcades that's it i mean the 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 sort of the rock band is probably the best example of something that was a success based on its peripherals but nothing's ever matched sort of the arcade experience and going there with your friends and and so the you know the the gun con and the way that um time crisis used the pedal uh, etc it was sort of that level of interactivity with that game that, that just added to everything that the second that you played it on the home consoles and you were using a button on the side of the gun and stuff, it, it just didn't sort of match up. So it was never, mm. yeah, it was just never the same enjoyable experience. Uh, it's not that it, it was bad because, you know, everyone, I think, seemed to enjoy Time Crisis. They were happy to throw down big money at a game that takes about 40 minutes, but uh, <laughs> just there was always just something special about the arcade, which yeah. is definitely missed. A big yeah. meaty mm. metal pedal that you had to stand on. yeah. Uh, yeah. Now, did you guys ever have in your arcades the that the golfing game with the giant trackball that you had to flick in one direction? To... Golden tee. <laughs> That's the one. Uh, <laughs> I've never, I've never seen one in the arcades around here, uh, but it always did seem like it was a big deal in the mm. US because they used to have tours, which is kind of strange where you'd go around and mm. these major competitions on golden tee. Um, and I remember watching a documentary many years ago about oh. it, but no, I never experienced that one. I still see those in dive bars and you know all over the place over here, but <laughs> maybe it is more of an American thing. Uh, James, do you have any particular memories from the arcades? <laughs> not not masses, just the, the usual, just uh, before I go to the cinema or when I was off bowling, jumping on whatever machine was free with friends, uh, racing machines usually. And again, that's another genre that almost no matter what sort of setup you've got at home for that, the um, the feeling of those big plastic, uh, those just giant uh, setups for sort of climbing into, clambering onto, into a proper racing seat, and you'd have, you know, uh, handbrake and, and uh, whatnot next to you, and and obviously all the appropriate pedals and wheel. That's kind of the a similar yes, sort of yeah. screaming speakers. All the racing games <laughs> always had screaming speakers uh, right, right by your ears. face. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think it was always the uh, Star Wars Episode One Racer was the best at delivering a unique experience in the arcade as opposed to the home mm. version. Like I love using those two, like not joysticks, but eh, anyways, yeah. we're getting bogged down in the <laughs> memory lane. We're here. just talking about the arcade now. <laughs> That's right. Well, uh, let's go ahead and move on to uh, James. You're bringing us something uh, much newer than Carl's first pick. Much, much newer. Yeah. Um, and uh, I'll, I'll go ahead and say now, I'm pretty sure, I'll, I'll look back, we've had plenty of uh, tracks from Souls games previously, but this is the first one that I've brought that is straight from the games. Um, I, I should probably say that, obviously I'm going to avoid any uh, spoilers, but we we did agree that given the track name is uh, the name of a boss, and Ryan, you vetted me on this, that you don't think it's too... Uh, spoilerific. So it doesn't we'll say anything and... about the fight. Like it's not like no. uh, not like and... the boss is called like giant man with hammer or anything. <laughs> so I think we're okay. But if you're really averse to spoilers, then uh, you know you plug your ears skip, and go into skip, the other room. Or yeah, something. <laughs> skip forward till you hear music. But uh, in, in terms of actual uh, lore surrounding this guy, again, not going into anything. He's uh, he's pretty significant, um, to be honest. And it's not obvious from the off that that's the case, but. Um, doing a bit of digging around anything connected to him, as you always have to do. Mm. Um, in Souls games, you have to kind of piece together uh, comments here or item descriptions there to try and come up with who this character might be. Um, 
the the fight feels significant. It's uh, I think the hardest or one of the hardest fights um, in in any of the Dark Souls games, certainly, uh, and epic just in a way that so uh, a couple of the the Dark Souls two DLC bosses really went for it in terms of being epic, and and this is on that sort of scale. Uh, so the boss fight being memorable, it, it was one reason that this music stuck out. But the other thing is the environment you're fighting in. Um, again, it's not a spoiler to say there's a lot of swirling wind and some of the um, mm, yeah. motifs in this track really pick up on on that. They really make you feel that. Uh, I, I can't really place what it is in terms of instrument or what exactly they're doing with it, but there's a couple of motifs spread throughout that really sort of lean into the, the notion of the chaos and the grandeur uh, and really sort of setting up what this fight uh, is and what it represents. Um, and just hearing the music again when I was sort of picking tracks out for this, I thought there's no way I can't um, put this in. You know, you, you worry with a, a boss fight that's significant that maybe you're just attaching, as you said, uh, actually, Ryan, you're attaching significance to a piece of music that maybe doesn't stand up on its own. But uh, I think this does. This is... Souls music through and through, uh, and in Dark Souls 3, there's, um, for the first time, I, I think, uh, in the series, there's a bit more of a lean back towards the sort of horns and real uh, mm -hmm. notion of discordant sounds that Demon Souls had. Um, this isn't the composer from Demon Souls, this is Motoi Sakuraba, um, who did the Dark Souls uh, soundtrack on his own, and then uh, along with Yuka Kitamura, did Dark Souls 2 soundtrack. And uh, now back together again for Dark Souls 3. And this uh, piece just really uh, got me jazzed up for this fight. Uh, I, I hope you appreciate it. It's full of bombast and it's uh, something quite special, I think. Uh, so this by, as I mentioned, Yuka Kitamura and Motoi Sakuraba uh, is from From Software's Dark Souls 3. And the track is called Nameless King. <laughs>
was Nameless King from Dark Souls 3, brand new. Although slightly less brand new for James. You, you got to play it a month before everybody. Uh, yes, yeah, <laughs> I'm, I'm sort of five weeks in and uh, a full achievement list completed on Dark Souls ah, 3. So, <laughs> um, yeah, and it's not a quick game to do that on either. So uh, yeah, it's been imagine. a fairly solid sort of four or five weeks for me of just playing that and almost nothing else. So. Yeah, well, it, it's okay then, right? You know, it, it's it's not the worst <laughs> way to spend your time. No, no, that's not me looking for sympathy. That's just me <laughs> admitting to something that I probably should admit to. <laughs> I've always been a fan of the the slower music in the Souls games, the, mm. you know, Firelink mm-hmm. Shrine and the uh, Majula and uh, Hunter's Dream and whatnot. But Yeah, the more pensive the, stuff, maybe. Yeah, yeah. But I've always found, at least in the first two Dark Souls games, the boss music to be a little cacophonous for my taste. Um, it's a little too busy, a little bit too much Indiana Jones to them. <laughs> and yeah. like, I, I've never been good at picking out the the tunes in those pieces mm. or the yeah. uh, kind of the melodic through line in those pieces, mm. the, the motifs. And so whenever people talk about you know oh, i think this boss is connected to that one because he has a piece of of his theme for three or four <laughs> bars like that is kind of impenetrable to me which is odd because like i'm usually pretty good at that kind of thing um but just with the souls music like it's not been bad but it's definitely been background music for me in dark souls one and two and when mm. um Bloodborne came around like that was completely the opposite like i mm. loved that soundtrack because it was a little bit more in a melodic and use softer instruments and you know less like full choirs and more you know like some strings and a couple of voices here and there and really kind of doubled down on having memorable motifs and themes and stuff and so going into dark souls 3 like i wasn't really sure what to expect whether they were going to go more of the bloodborne route Mm. or whether they were going to take the you know high fantasy souls approach and uh while it does lean a bit more towards the first couple games than Bloodborne. Like, I think that um, it, it is a little bit more, it's decipherable to my ears. I don't know if that says Splits anything about the music almost. itself. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah, but I... Uh, yeah, no, I know absolutely what you mean. Yeah. Uh, it's funny you should say that. One of the tracks I was I was thinking of picking, there mm-hmm. is a, a very strong motif uh, and callback in, in that track um, mm-hmm. that would have been a spoiler just on its own. So uh, I'll say no <laughs> I more think I know which that. one you're so talking I, about, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I had to, to pull back from, from putting that one in because there was no way to dance around uh, that. It would have just been noticeable to some people. So, And you've got to be careful because, you know, James does have a, a history of somewhat spoiling other games <laughs> whilst discussing another game uh, in, in the past on Cain and Rince. Yeah, well, hey, houses, Carl. Uh, so, so, thank you, so thank you for reining that one in there, Jim. But on, on Sound of Play, no less, I think I've managed to do that before. So. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah, well, I have to say, on uh, from the Dark Souls 3 soundtrack, my favourite piece, um, probably mostly because of the way that it was presented in the game, is the point at which the safe zone music changes, and I won't go into detail as to what it is but Mm. um you know you make a you make a choice and um you know somebody tells you a piece of information that makes you look at things differently and the music changes to reflect that which almost feels a little more heavy-handed than what from software usually likes to do usually they like to kind of you know just put the information out there and let you make your own decision but the fact that 
the world is starting to kind of like shift in relation to just this new piece of information being out there felt really kind of powerful to me. And it's a lovely piece of music as well. So, well, and I think we can promise our listeners there will be plenty of Dark Souls 3 coming up. Plenty so <laughs> even if you didn't get the free soundtrack when you bought the game, uh, you'll probably be hearing most of it on our various uh, sounds of play in the future. So more to come in that regard. And we'll have to... Uh, We'll have to think about when that spoiler wall comes down so we can play some Mm. more of those tracks that have some deep lore significance to them. But until that, let's uh, dive into another game that has to do with Flame and Darkness. Um, This is a a forum request from Flabio, who requests a piece called The Flame and the Flood from a game also called The Flame and the Flood. Now, this is a... Another kind of brand new game. This is a survival uh, roguelike, from what I understand. Yeah, yeah. I haven't played it myself, although I've, at Game Critics, which I write uh, reviews for, I've seen the review code kind of circling around. I just haven't you know, picked up on that one. But it looks uh, really lovely. The art style looks pretty fantastic. I think I'm kind of disinclined to try it because I'm not super into survival road- roguelikes. But if, you know, you've been... Um, you know, really entranced by something like a Don't Starve or something in the past. And this looks like a pretty, um, well, at least a graphically lovely and musically uh, very capable game. Um, mm-hmm. This is a theme song, since it is titled the same thing as the game. I assume it's like a title screen or it's at least what they're using in the trailers. But this is composed by a Chuck Reagan, who is uh from what i what i'm getting from the wikipedia entry an american singer songwriter and guitarist who was apparently in bands in the past uh hot water music let's see seven inches no idea records i'm not sure if uh if that's a record label or if that's the act that he was associated with but nevertheless he's not somebody who i was intimately aware of beforehand but um i i guess he does have a background in uh in music and this actually kind of reminds me of the type of, um, I, I don't think it was licensed for Kentucky Route Zero. I think it was composed for that game. But they, they brought in experienced musicians who were able to give this kind of like country, southern, American, yeah. uh, uh, just kind of sound to to give it this kind of, you know, backcountry type feel, which is very evocative for you know that game which is which has some horror elements and this game which has some you know survival against all odds elements and um i guess you know if i'm gonna say anything about it i'd say just uh look up the trailer because it's a a very well directed trailer and i think it gives a pretty good sense as to what the game is having not played it myself but this is the flame and the flood by chuck reagan Keep my eyes open 
chance to get to it yet but i know microsoft have uh, pushed it quite heavily mm. uh, over the xbox one um with the the likes of major nelson uh, and uh, mike ibarra constantly having it on there when they when they show their xbox one dashboards in mm. the videos they tend to always have the flame in the flood as the last played game <laughs> uh, i think i think that's quite an intentional move uh, as advertising because it is a, co- a console exclusive at the moment to the xbox one mm. but mm. it's mm. something that i do want to check out it's just a little bit 
too much money at the moment for me. Mm. Um, I don't think it's I don't think it's not a reasonable price. It's just my current situation more than anything. Right. Um, but it it looks absolutely beautiful and in terms of its artistic approach and that alone has me won over so it, it sort of reminds me uh it's striking in the same way that something like bastion was quite visually striking yeah. so mm. uh, i definitely intend to check it out in the future kind of feels like it fits in with the firewatch and uh what is that other game that came out this year the uh the one that's kind of dialogue based oxen free that's it mm, um, yes. yeah. it kind of feels mm. like it fits in with those two like there's a little bit of a theme of like exploring deserted campgrounds and you know in the forest and and rafting down the river and um mm-hmm. so yeah this kind of outdoorsiness is is really mm-hmm. kind of grabbing the game world this year um i haven't played it but i've, I've um i've seen glenn talk about it on the on the forums and mm-hmm. uh i have to say uh, listening to this track and watching the trailer made me instantly much, much more interested in the game than I had been from hearing it was a survival roguelike because Don't Starve, I, I just didn't gel with for whatever reason. Uh, but just looking at this game, yeah, it, it gets... Uh, with the music uh, and and the visual, it just gets across the setting immediately. And as you say, it seems to be uh, something of... Um, it's in the air at the moment, um, in the zeitgeist, if you like. I think there was a while in there that survival roguelikes were like the only thing that was coming out. And especially within the indie scene, like everybody had a survival roguelike. And so it was really hard to stand out, you know, especially if you mm. had zombies in it. Um, then that was just another, you know, a kiss of death, almost like, well, mm-hmm. that's just another one to throw on top of the pile. But um, I think since like recently uh, with, you know, Ark Survival evolved and, you know, this game and, and a, a few others that kind of have evolved in that in that scene. Um, there's been some pretty striking stuff coming along. So maybe this genre is getting a second wind. All right. So we have uh, another very different track again from James. I promised way back when to try and uh, and get Indestructible, the original Street Fighter 4 <laughs> song onto here, even though it wasn't an original composition for the game. Um and I didn't want to to do that here. We may come back to it at some point, but uh, but I did want to um, recognize some of the the uh, scoring and, and music work that's gone into Street Fighter Five, which I think has been some of the best the series has um, has seen. Um, there's some standout tracks in the, in the main game, but I also thought it fairly apropos for a couple of reasons. Uh, one, because Guile has just been added to the game as we record this um, two days ago. Uh, and secondly, because obviously uh, Guile's theme kind of needs no introduction where <laughs> Street Fighter music and video game music is concerned. <laughs> it's uh, a, a whole meme all of its own. Um, interestingly, when Guile was added to the game, uh, Guile's theme, it, it definitely has some of Guile's theme in the track called Guile's Theme, but I didn't like it as much as I like the stage theme that that goes with mm. uh, with the Air Force base theme, which is this, I mean, straight, fairly straight guitar, fairly sort of uh, not heavy, but uh, you know, it's it's up tempo uh, as you would kind of expect, and it just hangs itself around the the sort of the central motif if you like of, of Giles theme just really really nicely uh, I, I just listened to it and thought yeah this is just prime for um, for songs of play uh, sorry sound of play I'm renaming the podcast apparently 
Are um, rebranding now. Rebranding now mid, mid uh, 41st episode. It's <laughs> um, <laughs> the best time. Um, yeah, I just immediately thought this this has to go on here. And the only version I could find for a while was the full, what they call the longer extended version, which was 12 minutes long, which at a certain oh point gosh. is just iterating around. You know, it's repeating itself quite drastically. Uh, but I found a, a shorter, and I think it works better shorter. It's kind of designed, obviously, just to um, to go with the match that you're playing on this theme and uh, on this uh, stage. And um, matches in Street Fighter Five are pretty quick you know most rounds tend to be of the order of sort of 30 seconds you know you're kind of really pushing it if you're getting up to the 99 second uh time out um so two minutes 42 as this is it just seems like the perfect length to me it's it's up tempo it's got the hallmarks of street fighter uh street fighter's most well-known track of of the past uh and yeah i really loved it as soon as i heard it unfortunately um as is often the way we've often described both on Kanan rinse and on um sound of play that it can be difficult with some games where they have a either just an in-house musician team and they don't uh credit anyone in particular or where uh in this case five separate musicians are credited with composition and arrangement of these tracks um on the the main soundtrack they they have split up who is responsible for each track but this being a, a an additional track added after the fact um as i mentioned with guile as a downloadable character i haven't been able to find anywhere who is responsible for the track so uh, I've, I've listed all five um musicians here which are uh, who are masahiro aoki Hideyuki Fukusawa, uh, Kaiki Kobayashi, Takatsugu Wakabayashi, and Zach Zinger. Apologies for any pronunciation there. I just wanted to make sure all all appropriate names went out so that we could credit the right person. Uh, this is from Street Fighter V on PC and PS4, brought to us by Capcom. Enjoy!
Street Fighter V, that is quite a get for um, PS4 to have that as a console exclusive. That's a, <laughs> a big game there. Yeah, well, they had a bit of a, a rocky start, but uh, it yeah. seems as fairly sort of, they've been fairly vague about Sony's role in this, but it, it seems they've always said that Sony were kind of helping them develop it and helping with the cross-platform mm, yeah. play between PC and PS4. So they've kind of, nailed their colors to the mast that without Sony, this game wouldn't be what it is mm. and maybe wouldn't exist at all uh, to try and, you know, reassure people that this wasn't just a case of, of buying the exclusivity. But one mm. way or another, that's... That, <laughs> I don't know if I believe that. <laughs> well, whether you believe it, yeah, or, or is another matter. But they, they've seemingly, they've gone fairly far out of their way, always trying to, to assert that, uh, that that was the case. But uh, it... They've always, again, said that Street Fighter V will not be coming to other platforms and PC and PS4. Crossplay does work pretty well, which is nice. So um, now that they've got past the, the sort of slightly rockier launch, it's nice to have uh, have a new Street Fighter. It's been kind of a, a, a rough time, or maybe yeah. not rough necessarily, but it's been a real hit and miss time to be a consumer of new video games, especially these type of <laughs> episodic games with uh, Street Fighter. Um, pretty much unanimously launching to people feeling like this game needed more time in the oven, like it's not mm. finished yet, but you know it's slowly getting up to the point at which people say this is a finished game. Whereas, um, you know, Killer Instinct did something similar, but uh, I, I think it pitched itself a little bit better as mm. you know what it was going to be beforehand, yeah. and people were yeah. more accepting of it. And by this point, you know, Killer Instinct is a kind of much beloved game by very many people and uh hitman was you know something that a lot of people were expecting very little from because it seemed like it had a really troubled development them changing to be episodic halfway through but that one has been getting just absolutely stellar word of mouth since its launch and every new episode there are more people jumping on board so it's really hard to tell anymore (laughs) what you want (laughs) to invest in early yeah, I, th- I think it's one of those things where you have to speak to people you trust and read reviews from people or, or opinions from people that you trust uh, and just make your own decision when to jump in. Uh, with Street Fighter, I know a lot of people picked it up and, and a week later you could find a lot of copies in second-hand mm-hmm. shops. Some people waited for the March update, other people are going to wait for story mode in, in June. Um, and I, I know people who are, who are um, planning on waiting until all the Hitman episodes are out, but uh, I'm I'm glad I jumped on at episode one because, uh, yeah, it's uh, it's been a pretty big surprise given the way that Square yeah. Enix were handling the marketing and the, the yeah, sort of yeah. way of selling the game, you know, the portioning it out and that kind of thing. So. Well, the Hitman marketing has never been truly on point. <laughs> <laughs> no. It's uh, patchy at best, I think. It's, fair to say. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's often done stuff that's somewhat questionable, as as have Square Enix. But yeah. you know, all, all the credit to them. And in, in the regard, in regards to Street Fighter Five, I think uh, fighting games in general do sort of lend themselves to this uh, mm. structure of being mm. added to. I think yeah. just the the big question mark over Street Fighter Five was that. Um, they happily let people go by on the assumption that that stuff like story mode etc was a given when in, act- mm. in actuality it was purely put out there for for versus players with stuff to be added later which was mm. was a little bit disappointing but you know uh, it looks like they're almost at the content of a full game now and <laughs> it'll 
it's only going to go strength to strength. And and you look at something like Killer Instinct, which is now on what they call season three, mm. and it and it shines all the more because of it because yeah, it allows yeah. for this elongated structure for stuff to be polished and tweaked uh, and, and released. So I, I think uh, it's easy to be critical in the short term, and but I think in it, you know the long term view of it, it'll be a much better product as a result. And I do like this idea of a fighting game being more of a like a platform for future content rather than like yeah. iterative, especially with Street Fighter. We've been I don't yeah. know if burned is the right word, but you know, if you bought Street Fighter four on disc, then you would have to rebuy Street Fighter, you know, Super Street Fighter Four and Street Super Street Fighter Four arcade Arcade and you know all these different yeah Yeah. all these different versions which is you know something that capcom is is uh kind of notorious for and you know every iteration you might be gaining stuff but you might also be losing characters um but this model that killer instinct is kind of introduced of like this Mm. is the base game and you know over the years we will make sequels essentially but they will all play within this base software and so you're never losing anything that you used to have and uh it seems like a very balance patches and new modes and everything is is all part of the base game yeah yeah Yeah. it's smart it allows for it allows for rockier development Mm. it it definitely allows for rockier development as well when you consider that that killer instinct had an entire overhaul of developer between Mm. season one and season two and yeah. You know, Capcom being um, always seemingly on the verge of some form of disaster, <laughs> uh-huh. uh, I think it'll help. And then even seeing uh, Super Smash Bros. get that level of support after launch uh, with introducing new characters and yeah. new yeah. stages and stuff, like that is kind of the new standard for fighting, for fighting games. So yeah. I'm, uh, I'm definitely liking that. All right, we're going to go back to our forum now. We have Magician Arcana brings us Ethan Mars' main theme number two from Heavy Rain, composed by Norman Corbale. Um, this is from Heavy Rain. We've talked about it at length in uh, Kane and Rinse issue 100. And then just recently, we've also talked about um, Beyond Two Souls, the worst of the Souls games, I think if I would have put my opinion out <laughs> there. But... Um, <laughs> Yeah, Heavy Rain is a divisive game um, amongst many of its audiences as a PS3 exclusive back in the day and then more recently remastered for the PS4. Uh, I think it's one that people generally tended to like it at first and then as the years went on, more of that kind of cynicism crept into it. But Mm. I have to say, if I have to stand behind any of Quantic Dream's games, like this would be the one that I think has actually got some good stuff going on. you know, I, I've played Indigo Prophecy or Fahrenheit, or and it was, you know, it was its own thing. Uh, that's not one that I would <laughs> defend to anyone. But um, Heavy Rain has some um, really guess, evocative moments, and it has some um, some very strong, maybe not acting, but it had some very strong uh, just moments. I'd have to say, like you know, the story, whether or not it comes together, and whether or not the the mystery really holds water under deep investigation like it puts you in scenarios that were pretty intense and um you know really made me think about things and and have a have an emotional experience which well, is what Cage is going for. that's the key word that's what i was waiting for <laughs> uh yeah did the music from heavy rain stand out to either of you when you were playing it without sort of wanting to tear into heavy rain um, as a game, 
because I think you know we've we've covered that enough on on the podcast and, and what certain ones of our views are. Um, if I was to point any level of praise at that game, it would probably be at the score. Hmm. You know, I I, th- I think it's probably its strongest element. Um, it may have delivered more if I actually felt a connection to the characters. And I, th- I think if you ever sort of did and you felt that core emotion in that game, um, then then that score would certainly back it up and, and elevate that. Uh, but it it didn't for me experiencing it as part of the game, but listening to it as a score afterwards, I certainly appreciate elements of it. A lot of the criticism that's leveled against uh, Quantic Dream's work is the fact that you know, they don't n- always make the best games as much as they they seem to be wanting to make movies instead and um and since you know film scores are something that video games and movies share it would make sense that they've got the score element you know well handled and with Mm. the amount of money that sony seems to keep giving them i can imagine they can afford all of the best composers and the, the biggest orchestras and stuff well, and, and plus uh, Quantic Dream started out or, or came from a uh, video game uh, and, and film music team. They, they were, they were mm. musicians first, actually. Oh, okay. Uh, in, in, including David Cage, I believe. Uh, I want to say on Fahrenheit, we, we dove into that a little bit. They, they, mm. they started as uh, in, you know, uh, musicians, and, uh, musicians and instrumentalists. So, um, yeah, you'd expect their standards on that to be as, as high as anything else in the game. All right, well, this is Ethan Mars, main theme number two from Heavy Rain. And again, if you are curious about our thoughts on that um, to a much more, uh, I guess, competent degree than I'm able to recall off the top of my head after so many years right now, mm. then please do listen to Kane and Rinse issue number 100, where we talk at length about all things Heavy Rain and all things Jason. All right. <laughs> and track seven, Carl, you have a, another one of these older titles for us <laughs> yeah and this is one i've been itching to put onto this podcast for the longest time so it's great to finally be back on and be able to get this track out there this is a track called fin to feather uh, and it's from the lesser played of the echo games uh, echo the tides of time and this this is sort of a really interesting games development cycle for for music because we've mentioned it on some older games before on Kane and rinse that sometimes certain versions different teams working on them or if it's especially if it's sort of multi-format uh you know you've got obviously got aladdin on the mega drive and aladdin on the snes for example mm-hmm. through different development teams this is very different across the sega machines um this is actually the version from the so uh, supposedly lesser score uh because it's from the standard mega drive or genesis version whereas they did actually do an enhanced Sega CD version, mm. um, which is an entirely different feel of score. Uh, it's also available on the Game Gear. Uh, 
And interestingly enough, Master System. Uh, it's one of the rarest games around on the Master System because it was only ever released in Brazil, <laughs> which is which is kind of strange because it's not necessarily where you would associate a, 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 an exclusive release. Yeah. But um, this this is a, a an absolutely stunning soundtrack uh, throughout the the whole score to this game uh, is is sensational in my opinion and it's actually one of my very favourites uh, to listen to outside of a game i was never actually that keen on the echo games i thought they were beautiful to look at and they're certainly controlled in a a very interesting way but there was something where i just didn't feel much of a connection to play them however the music was always interesting but echo the tides of time has something just special about it and uh, it's from a team of three composers uh, attila dobos uh, andras magari and andy armor now uh, Attila and Andras are Hungarian composers who have only seemingly worked on Echo the Dolphin um, and uh, some other Genesis games of that era, or, uh, such as uh, Cyborg Justice and, and Tiny Toons Cartoon Adventures. But but the name there that's recognisable is Andy Armour. Uh, this is actually a Grammy Award winning composer mm. uh, who wrote Rise, the Herb Alpert song. <laughs> and for a period of time, he actually turned to Genesis music development and worked on many of the sports games, such as NFL 95 uh, and, and Wayne Gretzky, <laughs> and he used the alias DMP, uh, as was you know popular for, for legitimate composers to just use aliases when doing game development. But the, the overall score, if I had to associate with anything, actually sounds a lot like a Philip Glass score. Um, mm. very similar to the likes of Koyanis Kwatsi. Uh, it's very striking and has a really sort of surreal feel about it, even more surreal than the game itself, which anyone who's played Echo the Tide of Time knows that it can get a little bit crazy. <laughs> uh, but it's it, it's just very different, and it sort of uh, you appreciate it more with repeat listenings. And the the... There was always one game that I wanted to get on here ahead of this one that was on the list, and that was Shadow of uh, Shadow of the Beast 2. But we've had Reuben Cornell on here a couple of times, and he actually beat me to it. And Echo the Dolphin, the track that I've chosen, uh, sounds a lot like something from Shadow of the Beast 2, which uh, I've mentioned in the past is the first game I have any true memories of. So anything that's going to associate itself to that game... Uh, which was ridiculously difficult. You know, anyone who actually thinks that the Dark Souls games is difficult should give Shadow of the Beast a try. So anything that wants to associate itself or sound similar to that or make me think of that game is already on a winner. Uh, so for that reason, Echo uh, Echo: the Tides of Time is something that I'm just so fond of for its score and I hope everyone likes this as much as I do. Uh, this is Fin to Feather from Echo: the Tides of Time.
Thank you for that one. You know, as we were listening to that, I uh, I got a feeling of like, you know, that that era of Donkey Kong Country 2 and that type of of platformer and that the type of music that was associated with that, which I, I really love that type of tune. Um, I didn't ever play Echo the Dolphin growing up, but well, I think I sat down with it a couple very brief times and I remember coming away feeling like it was a little creepy and, and strange. And <laughs> where was I getting that from? Because my memories on that game are very hazy. Yeah, it is a little strange because it comes off as this beautiful sort of etheric uh-huh. feeling title where everything's really nice and then all of a sudden you've got aliens and time travel <laughs> and all this strange stuff happens across these games that you just sort of uh, almost blindside you. Uh, and for me, I, I never really enjoyed that. It was, uh, I I liked the interaction with the dolphin itself and how it controlled, but it's something that I appreciated more uh, that was done similar in Nights uh, into Dreams. Mm, yeah. It, there, was, there was always that similar crossover in how those games felt to me. Uh, but obviously Dreams, when that goes surreal, it makes sense uh, more so than, than Echo. But it, it's definitely something that was uh, quite unique. Um, I, I can't fully say fully unique because it, it's a terrible word to use because things are always borrowing ideas. But mm. Echo definitely has that, that feeling um, that it's mm. the first time I, I remember experiencing something of that ilk. Uh, certainly at that time, but the the score uh, of Echo: The Tides of Time, which is the second game in the series, definitely holds up stronger than the game itself for me. What a strange series! Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> maybe they'll bring Echo the Dolphin back for one of those uh, Sonic and Friends transformed racing type games. Like that would be that would be a real treat. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, maybe we'll talk about that a little bit later in this same podcast as well. But before we get to that. <laughs> We have a submission from a Wyatt Hoglo, or Hoglo, not actually sure, uh, on uh, via our email at podcast at canorinse.com. If you wish to request tracks, you can either post it on our forum. We have a special Sound of Play forum on the forum at canorinse.com, or you could email us at podcast at canorinse.com. Uh, give us a tweet at Canonrins, or uh, just post it on our Facebook page, and it will eventually make its way onto our <laughs> list of requests that we're compiling. And if it doesn't, feel free to give us a little nudge because uh, we're doing our best. But you know, it's, that's a lot of sources, and I'm just trying to stay organized here. <laughs> but this is uh, from a series that we have not yet covered on Canonrins. It is a very heavily requested series, but it's also quite a bit of an ask really <laughs> this is from the final yeah. fantasy series so that's it's many 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 hours if we want to to cover this properly on the main podcast but maybe eventually we will uh, this is from final fantasy 13 which is uh one of those that has very divisive opinions as well one that i believe was pretty negatively thought of until like maybe a year ago or half a year ago when all of a sudden a whole bunch of voices started coming up in its favor. And I'd I'd imagine they're always there, but just in my, uh, you know, scope of experience, just so many people started talking about Final Fantasy 13. I had to wonder, like, did did something happen? Like, did, (laughs) was this game re-released somewhere or, but anyways. It was just, it was just safe to come out and uh, and say you actually liked it by that point, probably. (laughs) Yeah, well, now Lightning is modeling purses and stuff. So it's a very different time. Uh, this is Snow's theme from Final Fantasy Thirteen by Masashi Hamazu, and this was uh, back in 2009 
that was seven years ago now, for the PS3, Xbox 360, and more recently on the PC, iOS, and Android. That doesn't sound right to me, but there they are, <laughs> iOS and Android. I, I'd imagine the very different versions of the game, but mm. who knows? These these little things in our pockets are getting so powerful these days. But anyways, um, yeah, this is a kind of starts off as a very like a hard rock and track, which is pretty cool. And then it really kind of settles back into a more video gaming groove um, as it gets to be more kind of mo- motif driven during the, the middle portion of the game. But man, that uh, I think that the, the opening chords are especially strong and especially kind of pounding which i i I tend to like so uh we are playing the snows theme requested by email
That is a little bit of Final Fantasy music. We've had a little bit of that in the past here, but that is a series that has been famous for its music for a very long time, and so uh, more of that to come, I am sure. Well, we have one track left to go, but before we do that, uh, we wanted to remind you that it's not just about what we like here on Sound of Play, so if you venture over to our forum at canonrinse.com, you can request your favorites, and we'll continue to include a selection of those in the playlist for each show, or just get a hold of us however you want to. We will play the song uh, no matter how it gets to us, and it's a carrier pigeon with some of your favorite video game music uh, written on a little note, and we will put it in the show. Uh, please do leave Sound of Play an iTunes review and uh, check out the Kane Rinse podcast as well if you haven't yet, because that one is excellent as well. A very in-depth video game discussion from week to week, releasing every Sunday. And now that this is also a weekly release, there will be plenty of our dumb voices to keep you <laughs> entertained. <laughs> um, I would like to thank James and Carl for joining me on the show today. Thank you for having me sure thanks guys good to hear from y'all again <laughs> and we have the final track which this one uh leon might be mad but he's not here today but this one isn't technically <laughs> video game music although i think it's hard to call it anything but as well it really sits in a, a strange place in between being video game and non-video game music but this is from a series of commercials advertising video games so it it counts i'd say um a very memorable series of commercials back in the 90s starring a sega tasanshiro advertising the sega saturn who um this was a a character that sega developed he dressed up in this kind of traditional karate uniform and uh would basically show up whenever people were doing activities that weren't playing video games like playing outside with their (laughs) friends and going to a like a dance rave and whatever and would beat them up for not playing video games if i was understanding that correctly (laughs) with basically the message that like play video games or i'm going to hurt you (laughs) um but they are hilarious commercials and i i love these commercials i I think i was uh kind of turned on to them back in college and uh that is so so funny and they come with this this music which is this um almost kind of like a filmic score uh you know this this epic song that is the theme song of this character Segata Sanjiro and over the years and over the you know various commercials that he'd been in they really kind of wrote this whole arc of his his personality he found love at one point he um, ended up sacrificing his life to save the Sega offices from being pelted by a giant missile. He uh, he he rode it off into space, kind of like a, the end of um, Doctor Strange Love, and and <laughs> exploded in in this massive fireball. And people on the ground were crying, "Sega to Sanjiro, thank you!" But um, just everything about this is so over the top and so just wonderful in that same way that the like the burger king commercials were back in the day like i just love this when they put a lot of character and personality into just commercial mascots <laughs> it's so stupid it's, it's just a shame that <laughs> of all the things he saved them from he couldn't save them from the sony playstation <laughs> that's true uh yeah but the um sega de sanchiro has been in a few video games he had his own video game i believe on the sega saturn uh which would make sense um which mm. i'm not that familiar <laughs> with i haven't played but more recently he had a 
very, 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 very tiny blink and you'll miss it cameo in um, Sonic and All-Stars Racing Transformed. In one of the stages, if you are, I believe, if you are in first place by like a sizable distance on one of the tracks in the third lap, you'll see him like very briefly fly by holding <laughs> the rocket that he uh, saved oh, yeah, the company the from at the end. Yeah. Um, <laughs> And then um, more recently, he was given a, a much more sizable role in uh, Project Cross Zone 2, the mega crossover fire, fire emblem-like game that uh, is an amusing diversion, I would say, with some lovely sprite art as well. But mm. yeah, he is in that game for those of you who are hankering for some more Sega de Sanchiro, and they have a kind of a rescored version of his uh, his theme song, which we're going to play here um, in that game as well. So... It doesn't sound quite as nicely, which is why I'm sticking with the original. But this is Sega Saturn Shiro from Fumio Okuai, who, from what I understand, just composed this and wasn't really famous from composing a lot else. But this mm-hmm. song has been on a few kind of Sega retrospective uh, CDs in the past. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, the theme song of Sekata Sanjiro. Thank you very much, and we'll see you next week. Sigur, 
途中で投げ出す奴らには体で覚えさせるぞ